0: Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. So we are changing it up this morning. We're done with our series in Genesis, if you've been here for a while. We will come back at some point. We're not done with the book, but we're just done with that series. This morning you can find 1 John 2, if you're using a blue Bible, on page 1123, 1123. So we're going to be looking at chapter 2 verse 28 through chapter 3 verse 10. 1 John starting in 2:28. Hear the word of the Lord. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself, as He is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, there are moments in life that are so significant that they mark a dividing line in our lives. There's the way things were before they happened, and then there's the way things have been ever since. These moments define our lives into two very distinct periods. And when these moments arrive everything about your life changes so you all probably have your own let me give you just two examples that perhaps you can relate to for me there was what life looked like before i married emily i refer to those as the dark ages okay we got through them but then when we got married everything about my life changed my joys my priorities my hopes All shifted. How I spent my time, my money, my energy was different. How I lived fundamentally changed with this moment. There was before until we got married and then there was after. In the same way, when our daughter Anna came along and we became parents, again, everything changed. Our joys, desires, time, money and hopes were all transformed seemingly overnight because there was life before we had kids And now there's life after we've become parents. And if we're followers of Jesus, there's an even more defining moment in all of our lives. And one of my favorite Christmas carols describes that moment so well. Listen to these well-known words from O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin an error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth a thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn did you hear the moment in there it describes what life was like before this moment it says long lay the world in sin and error pining that's what it was like and then it describes what life was like after this moment a thrill of hope The weary world rejoices. There's this new and glorious morn breaking in. So before, after, but what was the hinge? What was the defining moment for all mankind? Did you catch it? Till he appeared. There was life before he appeared and there was life after, but everything was one way until he appeared. And when Jesus appeared that first Christmas, it changed everything. From the moment he arrived, things would never be the same again. And this Christmas, what we want to do is we're going to spend a few times today, Christmas Eve, and next Sunday, looking at how things are different. How did everything change when Christ appeared? And to do that, we're going to look mainly at three places in the New Testament that all use this language of appearing. And each of these passages help us see why Jesus appeared And what's different because he appeared? Why do we celebrate every year? Like, we don't just do this because it's always been done. It's not just empty tradition. It's not just because the world around us says, well, it's December, you got to start doing Christmas. Why, what do we celebrate at Christmas? And one of the things that we're going to see all throughout this series is that Jesus appeared to save us from our enemies. Perhaps you remember when Zechariah prophesied about Jesus' birth in Luke 1, he said this. This is John the Baptist's father. And he knew that there's one coming into the world. He said this. He said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. Why? Why has he come? That we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers. And to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. See, we can't get away from him. To grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zechariah is prophesying about this one who's coming into the world. He says, you know why he's coming? To save us from our enemies. Okay, so who are these enemies? Who are the enemies that Jesus came to save us from? Well, the three enemies that we all face are Satan, sin, and death. And in the passages we're going to look at, we're going to see how Jesus appeared to defeat all of them. Now, I want to acknowledge up front, if you're going to be here with us for all three, there's probably going to be some overlap in these three messages. We're not, they're not only talking about this in one, this and another. There's going to be themes that bleed over, but I don't see that as a problem. In fact, I would say that's part of my purpose in doing this series, because what I want is for us to hear from different biblical authors. We'll hear from John, we'll hear from Paul, and we'll hear from the writer to the Hebrews, All talking about why Jesus appeared. And while there may be slight differences in focus, I think it's good for us as we read our Bibles to hear three different voices all singing the same song. So, today, or so here's where we're going for this series. This morning, we're going to see that Jesus appeared to defeat death and the devil. Christmas Eve, invite you to come celebrate with us how Jesus appeared. To put away sin. And Christmas Day, we're going to rejoice together that Jesus appeared to bring salvation. So there's other things, but in those, we're going to encompass a lot of them. So this morning, here's where we're going to go this morning. You can go ahead and toss up the slide if you got it. I couldn't come up with pithy little titles, but hopefully you kind of get a roadmap of where we're going here. So, four sections: how we can be confident when he appears. He appeared to make us children. He'll appear again to make us like him. He appeared to take away sins. He appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the way this is going to work this morning is I wrestled all week long with how how John is putting this together. And I think what he does is he builds a staircase for us. And the way John does it is I think he walks down the stairs. And so we're going to follow his flow of thought, go through the text, walking down the stairs, following his argument. And his flow of thought. So we're going to go one, two, three, four. But then at the end, I think we're going to put it back together. And we're going to walk back up the stairs to see what is John's point And how does all of this help us at Christmas time? Okay, so we're going to walk down the stairs. And then at the end, we're going to walk right back up to close it out. Okay, so let's jump in. And as we get started, one of the things I want you to notice in this passage. Look down at your Bibles again. Do you notice all the family language? You see that? Children. It's used six times. Children, children, children. There's father language. There's brother language. There's born and seed. Everything talking about, everything talked about here is explained in terms of being in the family. Particularly in the family of God. And so what we're going to see is how the appearing of Jesus connects to the family of God. We're going to see that in a little bit. But I just want you to notice right out of the gate, first words out of his mouth, family language. So look at me, look with me again at 228. He says, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Okay, now this verse right here, this sets the stage for the whole passage. So I think in the E news we sent out, I did not have it included. And the more I looked at it, I was like, no, that's gotta be in here because that's telling me where John's wanting to go. John's whole goal is in verse 28. What is his goal? He wants us to abide in Jesus, to live in him, to rest in him, to remain in him. And why does he want us to do that? Why is, why is that what he's after? He tells us so that we can be confident when Jesus appears. When Jesus comes back, he wants us to have confidence. See, Jesus appeared once, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, as a humble savior. But then he will appear again at the end of time as the king of glory. And when Jesus appears again, John is writing this because he wants Christians to have joyful assurance and eager certainty. He does not want people to shrink back from Jesus in shame when he comes, saying, oh no, like in in fear and terror. He says, I don't want that for you. What I want is that when Jesus comes back, you are thrilled. He's saying, Look, Jesus is coming. That's a fact. Doesn't matter what your beliefs about it. Doesn't matter your opinions or how you will respond. He will come. He will return in power to reign, as we sang. That's certain. The question, he says, is how will you experience that day? Will your eyes light up and your heart soar because the Savior you've been waiting for? has finally come that's what john wants or will your heart drop and you want to hide in fear and shame because of all your sin god wants to tell us this morning how we can greet that day with happy confidence and it all has to do with the appearing of jesus in verse 29 he gives us a test Of how we can be confident. He says, if you know that He, Jesus, is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. In other words, if you know that Jesus is righteous, and if your life reflects Him and His righteousness, you can be sure you've been born again. That's not because of who you are inherently. You didn't work that up. If your life reflects Jesus and people look at you and say, that's a righteous life, you know Jesus is in me. I've been born of him. The way you live will reflect what family you belong to. That's what John's going to be arguing all throughout here is the way you live shows what family you belong to. And our confidence, he says, when Jesus appears, is found in abiding in him such that our righteous lives show we've been born of God and are his children. That's what he says will give you confidence. What will give you confidence on the last day is not when you look back over your track record and say, man, I've done really well. God will surely be impressed. But it's when you look back and you can say, I see evidences that I've been born of God, that he has changed me, that he has made me new. He's made me his child. And guess where John goes next? He explains our status as children of God. Look at 3:1. He says, "See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God." And so we are. Here John pauses. As he's writing this letter, you can almost hear him marveling at the reality that God would actually love us so much. That he would even call us his own children. He would make us his children. So this morning, a really simple point of application is this. Does that blow your mind? It blew John's mind. Does it blow your mind? That God does not simply forgive our sins. Like, that's fine. It's okay. Be on your way. He does not forgive us and dismiss us. He opens his home. He welcomes us in and says, I want you to be a part of my family. That's very different. Like in our day-to-day lives, there's lots of ways you could probably help people. You can lend a hand here. You can donate some money there. You can do kind things for others. How often do you invite them to come be a part of your family? And sometimes we think that God is just like us, that he just simply gives out some helping hands, gives us a boost when we need it. Oh, don't worry about your sin. I'll take care of that. And then he just says, be on your way. God says, no, 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 I I don't do that. When I rescue you, I make you my own. What's amazing is that our God is in the heavens, right? This is in the Psalms. Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Okay, you say, that's, that's great. Okay, so that's just talking about how big and strong and mighty God is. What does that have to do with this? Well, if our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases, here we see that what pleases him To make you his child. What pleases him is to be your father. Of all the things, he can do whatever. And he says, that's what I want. I want to make you my child. I think here, I've I've mentioned this quote before, but I I think J.I. Packer is absolutely right that we show how much we understand the Christian life by how much we make of being a child of God. There's a lot of ways you can evaluate how, what someone understands about the Christian life, but Packer, I think, is onto to something saying it, you can tell a lot by how much a person makes of being a child of God. He says this, quote, if this, being a child of God, is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If that is not fundamental to you, if that doesn't blow your mind, and somebody says, what does it mean to be Christian? If somewhere in there is not, I'm a child of God, then you don't get it. And I think the Apostle John here would agree. Here we get a peek into the Apostle's amazement and awe at the fact that God would make people like you and me his children. And this Christmas, you and I are meant to share in that wonder. This verse is in our Bible so that we read it and say, yeah, that's right. We can call God our Father. And how did God do that? How did he make sinners into sons and the disobedient into daughters? He did it through the appearing of Christ. It's a Christmas story. Listen to Galatians 4.4. 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Friends, Christmas is about God sending His only beloved Son so that we too can become children of God. That verse is saying that after centuries and centuries of waiting, we just got done with a series in Genesis that was a long time before Galatians was written. And so ever since then, they'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. And after centuries of waiting, God the Father one day turned to his son and said, It's time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son. He said, It's time to go so that you can bring many sons to glory. And Jesus was born in time, space, and history. He entered into our world. But we also know that when he came, even though we've been waiting centuries for him, you'd think like there would have been parades and confetti and parties. But when he came, this long-awaited king, we know that the world didn't exactly roll out the red carpet for him. Instead, we read in the Gospel of John, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. What we see is that when Jesus came, he was misunderstood. He was rejected by the very creatures he created. So is it any wonder then that when we trust in him and are made part of his family that the world misunderstands and rejects us as well? That's exactly what we see in the second half of verse one in our passage. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. In other words, When the world misunderstands and rejects us, it's not, it shouldn't be surprising, nor should it be a sign that we're doing something wrong. Instead, it's a sign that we're following in the footsteps of our older brother Jesus. It says he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But that's not the whole story, right? Most rejected him, but John goes on and says, but... He came to his own his own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, what did he do for them? He gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. <clears throat> Are you seeing this morning, friends, that the one reason Christmas is such good news is that that's how we become children of God through the appearing of the Son of God to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And that, John says here, is now our governing identity. Look at verse He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. Because of God's great love for us, friends, if you are in Christ, who you are most fundamentally, if you ever have those existential moments, you say, Who am I? He says the answer to that question most fundamentally, when you strip everything away and get right down to the core, it's not your line of work. Who you are is not your career. Who you are is not your title. Who you are is not your age. Who you are is not your marital status or your how many kids you have or your lack of kids. Who you are is not your income. It's not your skills, not your personality type, it's not your ability. Who you are, if you are in Christ, most fundamentally is you are a child of God. And do you see how he says it? That's who we are now. Today. Right now, that's not something you're aspiring to one day. If if things work out right, that might be your your end up goal. He says, no, no, today, right now, you are a child of God. But then he goes on, he says, it's going to get better. He says, what we will be one day, that hasn't yet appeared. Why? Because Jesus hasn't appeared. He says, but when he does, when he does appear, we'll see him. Let that land on you a second. He's not speaking metaphorically. This is not some abstract, like, we'll see, like, I can see your point or I I see the wisdom of that. He means with your eyeballs, you will lay eyes on the Son of God. In all his glory and beauty and majesty and radiance, you will actually see Jesus. And when you do, you will be changed. I want you to think for a moment about some of the most incredible sights you have ever seen. When you think of beauty or magnificence, when you think of some of the the greatest things these eyes have laid eyes on, what comes to mind? Maybe it's an ocean sunset, a majestic mountain range, some vacation you've taken that there's just this slice of paradise. You're like, oh, when I saw that, wow. Maybe it's a beautiful work of art, a painting, a sculpture. Maybe it's your bride as she walked down the aisle. You think, man, there's nothing I'll see that's better than that. Maybe it's the sight of your child smiling at you, full of trust and love and admiration. Those are all incredible sights meant to be gloried in and delighted in, But as good as those all are, they don't come close to the breathtaking wonder of seeing the Son of God with our eyes. And when we see Him as He is, it will change us. When we behold Him, it says we shall be made like Him. So just... Try that on for a moment. Not only are you seeing the most incredible sight, something's happening to you when you see him. It's not just a casual, disconnected, at a distance viewing. Like, that's interesting, I'll move on. As you behold, you become. You are being transformed by the sight of Jesus. It says that God will finish the good work that he began in us. Friends, when it says we will be like him, We will be like him physically as he transforms our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. This means we will say goodbye to cancer and dementia and fevers and broken bones and viruses and weakness and weariness. When he appears, we will be like him physically. And we will be like him without sin. Think about that. No more temptation. No more battles raging within your soul of, I do the very things I don't want to do. That's over. There's no more wrong desires. No more selfishness. No more pride. No more envy. No more apathy. No more lack of love. No more unbelief. Friends, this is what awaits us when he appears. Which is why we pray, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Because when Christ who is your life appears, you also will appear with him in glory. We will be finally and fully like Jesus, our great older brother. Which has been God's plan all along. Romans 8 29 tells us for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And if that is our hope, that God's plan that he's working out in time and history through the appearing of his son is that we will one day be like Jesus and will be his son. He says, if that's your hope, John says, it'll change the way you live. Look at verse three. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. He's saying if our hope is one day to present it pure and blameless before him, we won't just keep living the same way until that day. He's saying Jesus is going to do it whenever he comes back, so until then I can just keep on living however I want to live. No, he says you'll be changed. You'll be transformed. We'll fight sin and pursue purity in our lives. We'll strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And this changed life is what John spends the rest of his time unpacking for us. And he shows us that it's only possible to live this way because of two things Jesus did when he appeared. Those are our last two points. So look at the first one in verses four and five. He says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared. In order to take away sins. And in him, there is no sin. So he just comes right out and tells us, why did Jesus appear? To take away sins. Now, that's a tricky phrase because it could mean a couple different things. And I'm going to argue in a minute, I think it means both. But before we get to that, let's start with what we know absolutely clearly. It tells us here, sin is lawlessness. Now that means more than simply that sin is breaking the law. That's, that's different. That's not all it's saying. It means sin is living like there is no law. It's fundamentally a desire to have my own way. For me to be in charge and do whatever I want. This type of lawlessness explains how there could be sin even before the law was given. Because that corrupt desire to have our own way was already in our hearts. Then when the law came, that sinful impulse that was already lurking there, that's what caused us to transgress the law. Here's how I would say it. Rules don't make us rule breakers. Sin does. Rule breaking is what comes out when the sin in our hearts meets rules. So that impulse, even before there was a rule given, there was already something in us that said, I want it my way. I want to do it my way. So I don't even have a rule to break yet, but I have an impulse. I have a bent, a desire that says, I'm in charge. I'm the one that gets to decide. I want to do it my way. And so when you give me a rule and I say, aha, I don't want it that, so I break the rule. I don't even need rules to be a rule breaker. Sin is what makes me a rule breaker. And this heart bent on practicing lawlessness, Of living that way. Practicing sin is what Jesus came to redeem and fix. It says he appeared to take away sins. Now as I alluded to a second ago, this could mean he came to take away sins by paying the penalty for them so that they no longer count against us. Or it could mean he came to take them away from being present in our lives. And I think he means both here. When it says Jesus appeared in order to take away sin, I want you to hear this sentence because I had to be very careful with wording here. I think it means he appeared to both permanently remove them from our record and progressively remove them from our lives. That's what it means when it says Jesus came to take away sins. He appeared to both permanently remove them from our record and to progressively remove them from our lives. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross in our place, he came to free us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. But I think John's focus here is on the second one. He's focusing on how Jesus appeared to free us from sin's power and tyranny in our lives. And I say that because of the context. Look down there. What did he say right before it in verse four? He said, everyone who makes a practice of sinning practices lawlessness. Then right after in verse six, he says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him both before and after he's describing a way of living a pattern of life do you practice this do you keep on this and so I think what he's doing is saying when Jesus came he appeared to free us from the power of sins he came to remove them increasingly from our lives until he appears again to take them away Completely. Then John draws out an implication of this reality. He makes two statements that are like two sides of the same coin. He's not saying two different things. just two sides of the same coin. First he says, No one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. If you are trusting and resting in Jesus, you won't continue to live a life of sin. Now, we need to be very clear here, right? That can kind of sound jarring at first if we hear what he's not saying. What John is not saying is that if you're a Christian, you won't sin. That's not what John's saying. In fact, he laid it out very clearly a chapter before. In chapter 1, verse 8 of 1 John, he says, if we say we have no sin, We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He's writing to Christians saying, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar. So clearly whatever John is saying here in chapter 3 is not that. He's been crystal clear that Christians sin. Instead, the tense of the verb here tells us that he's talking about an ongoing persistence in sin. Not just an occasional stumble into it. He's saying, look, if you are abiding in Christ, you won't keep on sinning. And he doesn't just mean like I sin this way one day, that way. another. It's like if there's a persistent pattern of sin in your life. He, he backs it up with the other side of the coin. He says if someone does do that, if someone does keep on sinning, if they willfully persist instead of repenting, he says they haven't seen Jesus or known him. In other words, they are not a Christian. Why? Because Jesus appeared to take away sins. So if we belong to him, we won't keep living the way we used to. We will be changed. If we belong to Jesus, sin has already lost its power over us and we'll see it progressively lose its place in our lives. Until one day, either Jesus returns or we go home and he perfectly and permanently removes sin from our lives. Okay, I know that's, there's a lot of complicated stuff in there. But, so we want to be careful. But we also don't want to dilute or diminish the point John's trying to make. And we're going to come back to it because he does. But here, John is adamant on this point that if we truly belong to Jesus, we will be changed. In fact, he continues it on in verse 7. Look there. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Hear the tenderness he has as he implores them again. Little children. My beloved little children. He says, don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let them trick you. Don't let them feed you this line or this view or this false teaching. Don't let them deceive you. There is no such thing as a Christian who lives in unrepentant sin. In the Bible, that does not exist. Because trusting in Jesus does not give you a pass that allows you to keep on sinning without getting punished. Trusting in Jesus gives you a power that allows you to not sin and a power to turn and repent when you do. John then divides everyone into one of only two camps. John doesn't have this big spectrum like, well, there's this group. this He says there's two kinds of people in the world. That's it. The Bible does this again and again and again and it rubs against our modern tendency to want to to kind of have like lots of variation. He says, no, 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 no. It's really this simple. It's either this or this. Whoever practices righteousness, group one, he said is righteous as he, Jesus, is righteous. On the other hand, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Both groups, he says, we all look like the one we belong to. Either we practice righteousness because we belong to Jesus the righteous, or we practice sinning because we belong to the devil who's been sinning from the beginning. When he says this from the beginning, he has in mind here, I think, the Garden of Eden. There in the beginning, the devil first did what he always does. He tempted Adam and Eve to sin, telling them how good and helpful and Pleasant this sin would be. And do you remember how he tempted them? He told them if they ate the fruit, they would be what? Like God. Now Adam and Eve were already like God, right? They'd been made in his image and likeness. But the devil enticed them with this idea that they could be like God in other ways. Ways they weren't meant to be. And that's what sin is. Sin is our wanting to be like God in ways we have no right to be. It's wanting power like him. Wanting knowledge and authority like him. To feel like we can be present everywhere. We can be self-sufficient. We can be the standard of right and wrong and holiness. We can have glory and be worshipped like him. And that being like God is what the devil offered to Adam and Eve when he tempted them. And when they believed the devil's lie, what was the result? They became guilty, and their sin led to death. And ever since that day, that's what the devil has been doing. Tempting us to sin by convincing us we can be like God and do what we please. And then once we sin, he accuses us before God of all the wrongs we've done. And the penalty for these sins that he tempts us to commit and then accuses us of is death. This is what the devil does. He lies, he tempts, he accuses, he condemns. Those are his works. But do you know the good news of Christmas? Friends, the good news of Christmas is verse eight. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to defeat Satan and all those works, all his tempting, accusing, lying, condemning works, all the death that it leads to. That's why the Son of God appeared. Listen to Hebrews 2. It says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's telling us why Christmas happened. He said, Jesus came as a baby, as a man. He took on flesh and blood like you and me so that he might destroy the one who has the power of death. He even spells it out. He says, that is the devil. And he came to deliver all of us who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery our whole lives. And how did he do it? By dying. He destroyed the devil in death through death. And did you notice how it describes the one who died in our passage? Do you notice how Jesus has been described all throughout here? Verse 29, he's called righteous. Verse 3, he's called pure. Verse 5... In him there is no sin. This pure and righteous and sinless one came to suffer and die in the place of impure, unrighteous, and sinful people just like you and just like me. And when he did, he paid the penalty our sins deserve so that now the devil has no accusations to make against us. That's how he had the power, the power to condemn. He was the prosecuting attorney who had all the real evidence. If they went to court before God and we were accused, he had all the evidence. His case was made and he could just say, he did this, he did this, he did this, he did this. And we had no plea except guilty as charged. Jesus came to pay that penalty so that now there can't be double jeopardy. He's already done our time. He suffered and died in our place on the cross so that now when when the devil tries to make those accusations, Jesus said, he did and I paid for it. And your case is dismissed. So now the devil has no accusations to make. And then after Jesus died in our place, he then triumphed over death itself. So that when we belong to him by faith, it says we no longer need to fear death. I got to preach this at Walena's funeral this week. And friends, I just was struck by this reality that we don't need to fear death because Jesus came at Christmas. Like Christmas is the reminder of that. And not only that, he put his spirit within us, it says, so that we have the power to not believe the devil's lies and not give in to his temptations. We can now resist the devil and he will flee. He's been defeated by Jesus and we've been freed from his power. And did you ever notice, maybe you haven't paid attention to this, but did you ever notice that Christmas carols are dripping with this good news about Jesus defeating Satan and death? I mean, the world thinks Christmas carols, they think like, oh, happy nostalgia, cheerful fires, there's chestnuts and sleigh bells and Rudolph and all this stuff. But Christmas carols, the really good ones, the ones that point us back to what we're celebrating, they are dripping with news about how Jesus defeats Satan and death. Listen. O come thou, rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. God rest ye merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ our Savior was born on Christmas Day. To save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. We could go on, but the good news of Christmas is that the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil and defeat death itself. And how does that whole story end? We already saw it. With us being made like him. The very thing that we were tempted with in the garden. We were made to be like God and then Satan came along and tried to tempt us. There's another way to be like God you don't have and I can give it to you. And so the rest of our lives have been marked by a sinfulness of grasping for what God will ultimately give us in Jesus. Finally, In verses 9 and 10, John goes back to his point that there are only two kinds of people. Look there. He says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God nor is the one who does not love his brother. He says, if you're born of God, he now dwells in you. And you can't keep on sinning. Not just you shouldn't. He says, it it doesn't work. Why? Because God's spirit inside you won't allow you to persist in sin. This is why I said earlier, the Bible doesn't have a category for someone who professes to be a Christian and yet lives in a way that's contrary to God's revealed word. He says, if you really are a Christian, God himself is inside you and he will not allow you to live in a way that contradicts himself. Sooner or later, you will feel so uncomfortable in your sins, so convicted, so just, I've got to get out of this. That's God's spirit at work in you. And he says, that's the reality for those who've been born of God. He says, if if you're persisting in sin, that's a good indicator that you don't have the Spirit of God in you. He says, therefore, the test of which family a person belongs to is simple. Everyone, he says, belongs to one of those two families. If you don't practice righteousness and if you don't love your brother, he said, you belong to the devil's family. Again, that's jarring. And we're not, we think, I, I may not be, I may not call myself a Christian, but I'm not, I don't belong to the devil. That's, the Bible doesn't have a middle ground. You're in one of two families, friends. And he says, if you're not marked by a righteousness that comes from being in Christ, a righteousness not that you produce in and of yourself, but because you are trusting in him, it's worked out through you. He says, if that's not in your life, you are still in the domain of Darkness. But if your life is marked by love for others and increasing though imperfect righteousness, it testifies you really have been born of God and we are in his family. That's where he ends this thread. Okay, so now we've, we've reached the bottom of the stairs. We followed his thought all the way down. So now to close, what I wanna do is I wanna walk you back up the stairs and show you how this passage highlights how everything changed when Jesus appeared. So start with me at the bottom. What we've seen is this. The Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil and defeat death. Step up. He's done that by permanently taking away sin from our record and progressively taking away sins from our lives and making us Children of God, step up. And when Jesus appears again, he'll take away sin perfectly and make us not just children, but glorified children of God like him. Step up. Therefore, because we are children of God now and our changed lives testify that we belong to him and his family, we can have confidence when Jesus appears to bring his kingdom. Everything changed because he appeared. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. My hope for you this Christmas, friends, is that you would feel that thrill of hope. Your weary souls would rejoice because he appeared. So would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you that through him, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved son in whom we have the forgiveness of our sins. We thank you that you knew the exact right time. When the fullness of time came, you sent him. From that moment, nothing's been the same. I pray, Lord, if there are people here who don't know him yet, that today would be one of those defining moments where everything changes, where you transfer them from one family to the other. And when they finally have hope, they are no longer slaves to sin would have been set free because of the appearing of the Son of God Lord this Christmas would you help us to marvel afresh that we are your children that even when we pray the fact that we can call you Father should boggle our minds who are we that you are mindful of us and yet you are not only mindful you love us You loved us by sending your only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish, would not suffer the effects of sin and die, but instead would have everlasting life. To all who received your son and believed in his name, you gave the right to become your child. Would we glory in that this Christmas? Help us to celebrate that truth now as we sing together. Pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen.